Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, it's that time of week again, Radiotherapy. And I'm so pleased to be with you this morning. I'm joined in the studio today by the ever-present and ever-wonderful panel beater. Good morning, Cyber Sue. Good morning, listeners. Thank you for calling me by my name, not my new name. Yes, Psycho Sue was, <laughs> was, was workshopped. <laughs> Anyone who knows me thinks that might be more appropriate, I think, Psycho Sue. <laughs> anyway, here we are, Cyber Sue and um, panel beater. And we also have in the studio today our newest guest, um, host Miss Perineum. Good morning, Cyber Sue. Good morning and welcome. Thank you. Yeah, and it would be very remiss of me not to mention the importance of a special day for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if I was able to sing, I would sing you, but I will spare our listeners. Oh, good. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so, uh, so first day kind of guest hosting on the show and it's her birthday, so thank you for... Seemed an appropriate way to celebrate. Doesn't it just? <laughs> exactly. And um, we also have online our lovely, lovely host, mum, Dr. Trainer Wheels. Trainer Wheels. And we also have our other newest host, baby Felix. Yeah, so- I've got a special guest with me this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Felix is looking pretty happy. Yeah, he's okay. We'll see how we go. <laughs> yeah. So, if anyone hears a wee bit of crying on on air, that is our um, that is baby Felix. Triple or it could R. be me. <laughs> Fair enough. It could be mum. <laughs> so, no welcome. And finally, we have a very wonderful and also a very diverse duo of expert speakers on uh, on the show today. Um, we've got Royal Hospital Royal Children's Hospital paediatrician Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. Lexi's going to be talking about what she's been seeing in the onslaught of viral and respiratory infections this winter, and most especially in the young kids. So, hi, Lexi. Hi. Thanks for having me, CyberSue. Oh, no, it's absolutely our pleasure. Lexi's going to be talking about why this is happening and what we can do to keep um, our kids safe and healthy, and also, I think, touching a wee bit on the vaccination for the very young ones. Yeah, the new recommendations for the COVID vaccine for young infants and toddlers. Excellent. And then our second guest is um, at the other end of the spectrum. It's a renowned Melbourne filmmaker, Amiel Corton-Wilson. Now, he's going to be talking about his new documentary. It's about to be showcased in the Melbourne International Film Festival, MIFF. Um, it's called Man on Earth. This documentary shows the last six days of life of a man with Parkinson's disease before he utilises voluntary assisted dying. Um, the synopsis of their documentary says calls it a moving celebration of vitality and passion in the face of mortality. So we'll find out more about that in the second part of this show. But first, I think it's time for some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Miss Perineum, we're nothing yeah. like working into the moment. You've got some news for us? Yeah, so actually we're just at the end of Breastfeeding Awareness Week, so I thought it was an appropriate news story. There was a Phase 1 clinical start 
trial that's come out and been started by Dr Owen Ung up in Brisbane as a collab with the Heston Biofabrications Institute. And they're using a new form of breasting scaffold as a form of replacing um, breast augmentation. So instead of your silicon implants, it's a biodegradable substance that's effectively made of the similar substance as um, dissolvable sutures. And it is designed and printed over at a company called Bello Seno, which I'm told is means beautiful breast over in Italy, but it's made <laughs> of porous polycaprolactone, um, which is this dissolvable substance that over a five-year period dissolves within the tissue of the breast. And it's filled at the time of, of um, surgery with a liposuction amount of fat that's taken autologously from the person that's having the surgery. I think it's really interesting. They're only in phase one trials. They have done a similar trial recently, which is looking at a particular type of birth defect um, called pectineus excavatum, which is basically a deformity in the sternum. And the, the structure that they used there was to basically bulk out that gapping and allow the tissue to look more normal. But it's got a lot of um, implications in terms of what it can be used for down the track if you think about it as a um, basically allowing the same cells as the human body to repopulate an area that's had a deformation. It's got a lot of implications for things like skin grafting or trauma victims. Um, and considering the fact that one of the most common reasons for best augmentation is actually finishing lactating and post-breastfeeding mothers, I thought it was a really interesting coincidence that this was started this week in Australia. So, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. That is fascinating. I think, you know, to replace, um, you know, and augment breasts and, and other body parts with, you know, cells that um, are not foreign objects, because we know if you put foreign objects into a body like previous breast implants, there have often been a lot of complications. So this is a really interesting news story. Yeah, and the the way they're doing the surgery at the moment, it sits just underneath the dermis, so it's not like the silicon implants that we currently have because they're an artificial substance. The most common form of um, breast augmentation that's been done recently is underneath the muscle, um, and and that has a lot of implications for the biomechanics of the chest um, and the capacity for people to maintain posture and and support their neck, and, and that can lead to a lot of sort of further complications and quality of life issues. So I think it'll be a really interesting study to see what their results come out as. Well, I think that, and as you say, what a great timing to have have that come out, whether yeah. that's coincidental, but um, breastfeeding week as well. So. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Perineum. No and so, so we're, we're good at um, Trainer Wheels, Mum, Trainer Wheels Junior. What's your news item for us? Uh, yeah, we're okay for now. And I did just want to add that for Breastfeeding Awareness Week, um, as a currently breastfeeding person, it's bloody hard. If you know anyone who's breastfeeding, please make them a snack and take it over to their house. Yeah. <laughs> My news item is a little bit on the darker side. I'm sorry to bring the mood down this morning. I just wondered if anyone here has been following the story of Archie Buttersby, the 12-year-old boy in um, the UK. He's a, he's a young boy who was found unconscious in his home back in April. Um, and I think the circumstances of that are kind of not super clear, but his mum thinks maybe he was involved in some sort of online viral challenge thing. Um, shortly after he was pronounced brain dead and his parents have been in this protracted legal battle to keep his life support going and um, 
they they took it to to local courts and it was escalated i think to the supreme court or whatever the kind of more um uh, important court is in the uk uh they they took it to the european court of human rights or something and they they lost all their appeals and the boy's life support was withdrawn a day or two ago and i think he did die overnight it's a very sad story um for for that boy and his family absolutely and i really feel for the healthcare workers looking after that boy too because a very challenging position they were in um and raises a lot of ethical concerns doesn't it about who who makes the decision about when someone's life should end and um and you know the definitions of death and all the rest of it it's a yeah very challenging sad story absolutely trainer wheels and i, I it is it is an absolutely tragic story and i think what's so hard about it is that on the surface the the, the, the it was hard, perhaps harder for the parents to really see that the child because there was a Brain. There was no life coming from the brain stem, and so the so the boy was being kept alive on life support. And for the, they had hoped he'd be able to move to hospice in order to uh, to, to, to die over a period of uh, days or in a more natural way. And the healthcare professionals they they just knew that wasn't going to be viable when he was on you know 24-hour ventilation in an ICU unit. That moving to hospice wasn't going to be viable. So, no, very, very, very tough story. And the other thing it raises is the role of medicine at the end of life and whether it can, of course, it's fantastic, but where it can really add complications. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's really interesting to see it from the medical side of things because you can you have this like innate understanding of what that process is going to look like, but then your job as a guide to take people through that who would have never have thought of this in 100 years, and that's a really challenging place to be. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's a lot about communication and about, you know, trying to hear everyone's side of the story and then as a team coming to decision together, hopefully at the same time. But obviously in this case it... it wasn't at the same time. Yeah, and it sounds like the the, the, the parents were a kind of at a very different place of their understanding to what the healthcare professionals were. So to try and bridge that gap was, as hence the courts got so extensively involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Trainer Wheels and Felix. So my brief story is um, just a brief update on the monkeypox. So um, we all know monkeypox has been in the um, news a lot and um, in, in the last little while. Um, it's a viral infection. It commonly causes a uh, rash and it's spread by um, skin-to-skin contact um, with someone else who has got monkeypox. Most people recover within a few weeks, so the illness is not necessarily severe, but it does require a period of isolation if you've got it, and in particular when you've got the lesions. On Thursday, the Australian government announced it had secured 450,000 doses of vaccine, and 22,000 uh, doses will be available this week. And this is in particular for people who are most at risk of transmission. And it will be accessible through GP surgeries and um, medical centres. And I guess I thought, um, how, how, how prevalent and how, how, how significant at this stage is monkeypox? And there's been 58 cases in Australia so far, so it's a small number. And I believe that all but two of those were caught um, overseas. Um, But globally, there has been 23,000 cases, and the World Health Organization has declared it a global health emergency. Mm -hmm. So my feeling is that Australia, you know, we're really trying to keep it at the door and do everything we can preventatively. 
Um, and I, what I'm also um, hearing and reading is the real uh, uh, awareness to try and reduce the reduce or avoid any stigma attached with monkeypox catching it in the transmission. It can be spread. It can remain on bed clothes. It can remain on sheets, and it can be spread um, in a range of different ways. But it's really the contact with the rash, and sometimes the rash can be in areas where um, it's not visible or easy to note. For example. Um, any parts of the skin, but also on the genitals and around the rectum. And that's where we're causing a, a, a higher rate of it being spread, for example, through, uh, through sexual contact. Yeah, and I think if you think about it from an international point of view, lots of people go overseas and partake in those kinds of activities. Um, so it's unfortunate that the messaging that has been around is that it's a sexually transmitted disease when it's actually a skin-to-skin -skin contact disease. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it, it is interesting, but I think as Australia opens up and the rest of the world, that travel bubble that we've had for the last two years and the protections it provides is diminishing. So great for the Australian population that we've had a, a sort of acquisition of this vaccine early in our piece um, but hopefully the messaging is really clear to people that it's not just a sexually transmitted disease it is actually able to affect everyone in our population exactly right and when I look online at some of these uh, some of the uh, preventative measures and that are, that are being recommended and they're including uh, obviously vaccination if you're an at-risk group uh, access to vaccination um, avoid uh, that close contact with people. Um, for example, if you're at a party where maybe not right now in Melbourne where the, with the weather being it as, as it is, but that close kind of skin-to-skin -skin contact, avoid mm -hmm. that contact with people who may have lesions on their skin. Um, and it's also um, suggestions are when you come back from overseas, reduce or abstain or use condoms during sexual contact for the next three weeks so there's less chance of it being spread um, once you're back in Australia as well. Yeah, and just being vigilant about it. You know, you can have a look for those scabs and things like that and be a bit more aware that they might be in areas that aren't completely visible to the naked eye. Um, and if you're not feeling quite right, to start going looking for them. Yeah, and I think if anyone's got lesions um, on the skin or elsewhere, then getting them checked with your GP is a really um, important step because then the GP can identify it, tell you what it may be, and then you can isolate, and that's the best prevention. Exactly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. So we are in the studio with Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, who's an old, wonderful colleague of mine from maybe 100 years ago. It's been a long time. It has, and it's really nice to see you again, and thank you and welcome back. Thanks, Abisu. Yeah. So uh, Lexi is a general paediatrician. She is in private practice and also at the Royal Children's Hospital. Not to mention, I guess, most of your experience, mum of three kids. Absolutely. <laughs> on the floor. She's passionate about all things to do with education for healthcare professionals, peers and colleagues, but also, um, most importantly, for parents and families. And um, Lexi has um, been involved forever in the Kids Health Info series of information sheets on the RCH website, which gets people visiting from around the world. But she also um, produces a really amazing series of Kids Health podcasts. 
um, also for the Royal Children's Hospital. Um, Lexi, I know you have been with radiotherapy before. I think your name is Dr. Flexi. I think it was. So um, that's obviously why you're standing on your head at the moment <laughs> with your in a yoga position. <laughs> Last time we said it was because we got very good at pivoting during um, <laughs> during COVID and the last two years. So I'm pretty flexible. Yeah, so Flexi Lexi, um, welcome. And it's my pleasure to welcome you back. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. So Lexi... Earlier on this week, um, I read a great article that you wrote, and it was titled, Why is my infant having trouble breathing? And in this article, you talk about the onslaught of children encountering viruses that they've never really had contact with before. Um, So I guess this is a side effect of us being in isolation and hiding away from others for the last two years. So can you tell us a bit about bit about that? Yeah, look, obviously over the last two years, particularly here in Melbourne, um, we had, you know, we isolated, we stayed at home, we had some really good preventive health measures that stopped us getting and spreading COVID. But one of the other effects of that is it stopped many other viral infections we often get, particularly over winter. And so over the last two years in children, particularly young children, we hardly saw any viruses. So we had very little influenza, flu virus, we had very little, uh, a very common virus called RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. And in hospital, we were not seeing many kids having trouble breathing like we normally do over winter. That was fantastic for the last two years. But what has happened this year and this winter is we've had an onslaught of viral infections in our babies, our infants and young children. And One of the reasons for that is that their immune systems have not faced viruses before. So they haven't learned how to fight infection. So, you know, I kept getting asked by other parents um, and friends, why is my child always sick? It feels like this winter has been the worst winter. And it probably has because they're getting, a lot of children are getting infection after infection after infection. Uh, and I mean, it must be tough for parents, you know. And then they've, if they've got more than one kid and mixing with different groups and at play at play groups, and then at school. Um. Absolutely, and we all, after two years of of being. Um you know, remote learning or lockdown. We want our kids to socialise and mix with other children and have all those positive benefits of being with other kids. But we can't send our kids if they've got viral symptoms, so runny nose, fever, um, coughing. So a lot of parents are feeling quite frustrated and having a really difficult time at the moment. And I can imagine it must be hard to kind of know, should I actually be keeping my child away or should I actually be encouraging them to mix with other kids so they can actually get that natural immunity? Yeah, look, I think it's really important to build immunity, but the recommendations are still if your child has a fever or a runny nose or has symptoms of an active infection, best to keep them home away from other children, even if they're COVID negative. Um, it is likely other viruses and in time they will build up their immunity again. We know that. Yeah, sure. So it's just a bit about just biding our time in a way, working our way through this. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully it will be a different story next year. Absolutely. And what do you think is more important, like or more worrisome for kids? Is COVID the big thing or are these viruses actually taking a front step? Yeah, look, it's it's not new for children to get viruses. Most children get about seven to ten viruses a year. So it's really common for your child to get sick. Um, the most common virus that we see over winter and currently we're seeing um, in Melbourne is RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which can present pretty mildly just with a runny nose, sore throat, cough, 
fever, but it actually in the younger kids under two, it often presents with breathing difficulty. And so they will often um, have really fast breathing, um, sucking in at their windpipe or between their ribs. They might have trouble feeding if they're breastfeeding or bottle feeding or having solids, and they might start getting dehydrated. So, you know, they're, they're the common things we see in a child with RSV, but other viruses can mimic it as well. We do know that kids can get COVID, but we also know that they're less likely to have severe COVID and need hospitalisation. So at the moment in Melbourne, over the last week or two, RSV is the most common virus. Um, COVID's probably the second one that we're isolating in the hospital patients. And then flu, um, we're not seeing as much of at the moment. But there's heaps of other viruses, paraflu, rhinovirus, the common cold, that we don't test for. And they're the viruses that many of our children have with snotty noses right now. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Lexi, have you found that particularly with the viruses that are spreading at the moment, that because kids haven't had an immunity to them, they're lasting longer with their symptoms or they're running into sort of a recurrence of these infections? Yeah, I think as a parent it feels like, you know, our children might get better for a day or two and then they're getting another infection. Um, And we also do know that they are lasting longer. So normally your infection, a viral infection, might last a few days, but often with RSV at the moment in the younger kids, you know, seven to ten days, even up to two weeks, they just get better and they get another bug. So, yes, their bodies are really learning how to fight the infection and they get a second infection on top of it. It feels like, you know, we can't let our kids out of the home at the moment. Is there any implications for kids that have also got asthma? I've seen quite a lot of parents talking about the fact their asthma has been worse and with all the viruses going around, it's had an impact. Yeah, so we do know asthma is a really common um, childhood illness um, and children are most likely to get asthma episodes and the biggest trigger of that is viral infections. Um, So any virus can trigger an asthma episode in a child who's prone to it or or been diagnosed with asthma. Actually, interestingly, COVID didn't cause a lot of asthma. So we had a, a much less rate of asthma over the last few years during COVID, but now with all the other viruses and bugs back in play, we are seeing a lot of kids having asthma episodes again. So it's really important that if your child has asthma, you have an asthma action plan, you have your medication on standby and you know exactly what to do. Do you think there's any implication with like the flu that you haven't seen quite as much? Often our flu vaccs that adults get really account for sort of four strains of flu a year. Do you think that because we've had that limitation in terms of travel and things like that, we've had less variations of flu coming through the population? That's a great question and I don't have the data on it. We did have quite a bit of influenza earlier this year and it seems that the influenza is decreasing as RSV and other viruses are increasing. So it ebbs and flows. Um, we do offer vaccination against influenza for children from six months of age um, and we do know that there has been quite a significant uptake of influenza vaccine earlier this year. Um, so that may, you know... Ha- that might be one of the reasons we're seeing less influenza now. But, you know, it does go up and down throughout a year and that's a normal process. And I, the other thing that kind of comes to mind for me is in past sessions we've been talking on radiotherapy about ambulance ramping and the really, really massive pressures on GP practices and EDs. So when my kid's really sick, 
What's your advice of when you should call an ambulance, when you should go to the GP, and how do we balance that with the pressure we're seeing on the system? Absolutely. I think that's a really hard question. And I think as a parent, you know your child best. So if your child has mild symptoms, runny nose, a bit of fever, a bit of cough, but they're pretty well in themselves, that's when I would recommend still trying to see your GP. Or if it's a respiratory infection and your GP is unable to see them, there are respiratory infection clinics set up around Victoria and easily accessible on um Department of Health website. So if it's a mild infection and your child's pretty well, but you just want to get checked, then GP is the first port of call. But if you are worried about your child, they're struggling to breathe, they're dehydrated, they're really sleepy, you know in your gut that there is something wrong with your child irrespective of what you're seeing in the news and hearing in the media, it's really important that you get your child to be seen and either via ambulance um, or in an emergency department. And as you know, um, CyberSue, hospitals have a triage process. So the sickest children and sickest adults in adult hospitals will be seen first. Um, And so if your child has a much milder illness, there may be a wait. But if your child is really unwell, then they will get seen at the top of the list. Absolutely. Is there any things, maybe not as a doctor, but as a mum, that you would recommend? We know that viruses really are not best treated by antibiotics. What are your go-tos for kids to really help them through a viral infection? Oh, the million-dollar question. Mm -hmm. If I had the answer, I don't think I'd be practising. It's really hard. There's really not a lot of treatments for viruses. We know antibiotics only work against bacteria. We know that it is important to give your child paracetamol or ibuprofen if they're unwell, got a sore throat off their food, mainly for analgesic, for pain relief, so that then they can eat and drink. Um, There is some evidence that honey is very effective for cough, um, even more so than any over-the-counter cough medicines. But I... Do you know if you go to a chemist and you go to the children's section, you will see shelves and shelves and shelves of different products, and that always tells me that there is no right treatment. Because if we knew what the treatment was, we wouldn't need so much variation. So, my go-to is make sure your child's comfortable, lots of fluid, um, simple food that they can digest, um, icy poles, rehydration solutions if they're getting dehydrated pain relief and lots of cuddles and, and love and care, but obviously oh. in a in a yeah. virally safe uh. way. <laughs> Always challenging as a parent. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to come back in a moment to talk to you about the uh, latest recommendations on COVID vaccination. But before we go to that, um, where can parents go to read more about this and or to listen to your podcast series? Yes, so I don't do the podcast alone. It's part of the Kids Health Info Royal Children's Hospital podcast series and we're just uh, finishing season four. You can find it on any podcast platform um, or on the Royal Children's Hospital website. You've also got access to the Kids Health Information fact sheets, of which there are many, um, and they're really aimed at parents and hopefully we're using language that parents can understand. So RCH website or through their social media channels, you can access both the fact sheets and the podcast. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
the federal government has just announced um, a Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. It's soon going to be available for um, the at-risk children aged between six months to under the age of five. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick update, like which children are considered at risk and who's going to be eligible under this plan? Give us a bit of an update on this. Absolutely, Cyrus. So, so you're right. The age group is six months to five years. We already have access to vaccine, COVID vaccine, in over five years. Um, but at this stage, ATAGI, so our um, governing body on immunisation advice here in Australia, have recommended it for three groups. So... Number one are children who are severely immunocompromised. Number two are children with significant disability. And number three are children with complex and multiple health conditions that if they happen to contract COVID, they're at more at risk of severe disease and hospitalisation. So they're the three large groups. You can get access to a list of different conditions that qualify. But at the moment, the recommendations are for vaccination from September 1st. Um, and at this stage, it's not been announced where people are able to get those vaccinations, but that information will become available very soon. Okay, so we're not sure where we can go, but just keep an eye out on the news. Yep. Absolutely. There's a, a fabulous website called MVEC, Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, um, and it's a collaborative website of all the big bodies who work in vaccinations, and they have the most up-to-date information. So if you can access that website, you will get all the information you need. That's excellent. What about if I'm a bit worried about my child, but they're not officially in this group? Absolutely. So if your child's six months to five years and they don't fulfil the criteria that are currently recommended to get the vaccine from September, you are unable to access that sure. vaccine at this stage. But Atagi is still looking at recommendations. And in America, it's now recommended from six months to five years from June. So it may happen in Australia. We are just waiting on waiting to see what happens in the US and what Atagi recommends. Trainer Wheels, I think you've you you and Felix have got something for us. Yeah, I just wanted to know, Lexi, if you know why it is that Atagi haven't approved it for all children aged six months to five years old. Is it a supply issue? Is it just that there isn't enough data? What's the what's the story? Look, I think it's multifactorial and um, you know, in Australia we are you know, rightly so, quite conservative and want to get good evidence. So I think it's a combination of supply. We are getting a, an initial supply for those high-risk children. But I think it's also that we do know that children do get COVID more, um, less severely. Um, and those children who need hospitalisation are often those who are immunocompromised or have one of the high-risk groups. So, you know, there are many factors um, that ATAGI look into. And I think it's watch this space at this stage. That's excellent. One more time, tell us the website. MVEC, Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Welcome to the studio, Amiel Corton-Wilson. Hi there, good to be here. So welcome. Thank you for being along. Now, Amiel, Wikipedia describes you as being the most prolific, innovative and critically acclaimed Australian filmmaker of your generation. Having directed over 20 short films, seven feature films, um, and what I've noticed is that your films often focus on human stories. And um, from 
a less commonly kind a, a, a less common perspective on the world around us. Um, so credit to you. And for our listeners, Amiel's also a producer, a musician, and has a visual artist with quite a staggering array of works and collaborations um, uh, with people from around the world. That's a that's a very uh, large introduction. I, I don't know if I agree with the first sentence, but maybe one of one of the in, yeah filmmakers of my generation. Well, <laughs> well, we feel very humbled and honoured to have you here today. So welcome, welcome along. Cheers. Yeah, and the reason we, we radiotherapy um, obviously um, all things health and well-being and so on, and um, we have a bit of a tendency when I'm on the show to kind of cover. Um, a topic of life and then a topic of the end of life quite often. And the Melbourne International Film Festival synopsis describes your latest film. The name of it is Man on Earth. Uh, as a meditation on time and mortality, a deeply compassionate, inspiring, surprisingly funny and heartbreaking portrait of Bob's last week on Earth. Now, I watched your documentary last night. It's it's a deep and it's a very, very thought-provoking documentary. It's it's not for the faint-hearted, I've got to say. Um, but I absolutely commend you on making a remarkable piece of work. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. And I thought we should kick off maybe, Amir, by telling us a bit about who is Bob and why did you make a documentary about him? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Robert Rosenzweig, the 65-year-old uh, Jewish, originally from New York, uh, I... I and my filmmaking team, uh, Chris Luskri and Alice Jamison-Dowd, the producers, um, had been searching for people to film uh, at the moment of death for another project, and that research took us around the world. We'd approached, I think, upwards of 1,500 different death doulas, dying with dignity groups, doctors, countries everywhere from, you know, Scandinavia, the UK, the US, Canada, and after about 18 months of that process... Um, Bob had heard about this other project and got in touch with us in January of 2019 saying, look, I'd like to participate with you with you on this project only if you come and film with me for the last seven days of my life. So that was a hugely different uh, prospect on a number of levels for us. I'd never been approached by a documentary subject. Uh, and I think from the get-go, that shifted the, you know, the ethical parameters or the concerns I would have otherwise had. I, I don't think I would ever impose uh, ourselves on on that time of someone's life unless they'd approached us. Uh, so he came to us and uh, it was a, a very, very fast turnaround. We, we had our first phone call, I think, four weeks out from when he'd set the date for his schedule, his death, and so um, managed to assemble a, a really wonderful team of friends and collaborators, three three other team mem members, and we went to Washington State to... Uh, to Yeah, we met with him, you know, eight days out from his, his, final, his final breath. Mm. And I mean that that answers the question for me um, because what I observed is that you filmed very intimate times with him, and um, you didn't hold back. The camera rolled, and uh, the film has many long shots of that. And um, I, he he invited you into that space with him, into that very personal space. Yeah, look, from the from the get go with our first conversation, I, I mean, not only did I knew that we would get on very well, he has a very acerbic sense of humour, and he's got this sort of great um, kind of gallows quick wit, which um, you know led him to be sort of wisecracking right up until he was taking that last medication. Um, but it was also his willingness to. I think in many ways, Bob is somewhat of a, a frustrated thespian or a frustrated stand-up comic. He was a great fan of you know Lenny Bruce and doing Al Pacino impressions in between 
you know, interviews and stuff. So the chance for him to tell his story and, and share his memories. And I think the other thing that, you know, really made us uh, want to work together was he was only 65 and he had multiple partners, ex-partners, uh, multiple children from different marriages. And he knew in that seven days that he really had a lot of relationships to heal and that he had a lot of amends to make. And there was a lot of work that he had to do emotionally um, to get him to a place where he felt okay to, to, to take that medication. Um, and so all those things, I think, culminated for us in a, in a chance to really... Um, yeah, make a, a, a quite particular and, and I think a, a portrait that has surprisingly uh, quite a lot of uh, levity too. So his humour, I think, buoys you through this journey and, and I think ultimately, hopefully, it's, 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 it's a nourishing one and, a, and one that can be quite uplifting as well as, as you say, confronting. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, I mean, my neighbour um, asked me, she said, is the film going to be uplifting? And then she was kind of embarrassed about asking me that. But I mean, I think it's a valid question and um, I'm not sure if I'd entirely call it uplifting, but I think that what I saw in it is that sense that he was taking control and his anger at the disease taking him and um, he did a very powerful piece to camera um, where he was uh, explaining how unfair it was and how he didn't deserve this and that the disease had taken him and th this was his chance to say, you're not going to take me. Absolutely, and I, I think that reflects, you know, his ability to to, to make that choice. Uh, you know, it was just by chance he was living in Washington State that you know his son, his carer Jesse, was living there in a small town called Aberdeen. So if he'd been living in another state, he wouldn't have had that opportunity. I think at the time of filming, it was eleven states in the U.S. that had passed legislation. Um, but seeing, you know, his ability to make that choice, him regain a sliver of autonomy. And, uh, and also it gave him a really important emotional and, you know, concrete framework in which he could, you know, uh, make, make amends where possible with these mm. family members. And uh, that's, that, that was a big take-home for me is uh, I saw, and I, and I see this in my own work as well, is that uh, how people live their life often is how their life ends as well. And the... The, the stuff that we have going on in life doesn't suddenly magically go away at the end of life. And for him, I saw that very strongly. He had some of those relationships that he had struggles with. And what do you think, do you, how do you think that affected him at, towards his end of life, his, his, his continued challenges with his, some of his family members? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, the uh, his carer uh, and, and oldest son, Jesse, that was a relationship that there was a, a really implicit and unspoken understanding. But he did have uh, a, a son who um, he hadn't seen for quite a number of years with, you know, um, uh, other marriages and, and who didn't feel emotionally equipped to be there in the room with him on the day. So his final farewell with that son was, was through a phone call. And I think a mixture of, you know, the phone call, the distance, um, the amount that can be communicated through an embrace, uh, all those things uh, led to what seemed like uh, the very, very, very pointy end of, of a realisation as to what was actually about to occur for him. And I think in many ways it's his... Uh, it's the moment that we see him kind of crack open emotionally, and 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 those wisecracks and those jokes in that in that moment, you know, there's, there's there's none of that. And it was a it was a decision that was a little difficult as to whether or not to include it in the film. But I think if we hadn't, it would have been um, 
somewhat disingenuous. So we, even though it's it is a difficult moment, it was it was important for the story. I think. No, and credit to you. Um, we are on uh, Radiotherapy Triple R. We are with uh, filmmaker Emil Corton Wilson talking about his uh, documentary Man on Earth, which is about to show at the Melbourne Film International Film Festival about. Bob and his final six days of life before he utilises voluntary assisted dying. So, Amiel, another question for you. Uh, Bob was Jewish, and um, voluntary assisted dying can be at uh, conflict with culture and religion. Did you notice um, any specific considerations for Bob and his family in this context? Yeah, uh, well, he was uh, Jewish, but uh, as he as he uh, said, he was sort of from like a, a, a radical leftist New York Jewish family. So <laughs> right. he wasn't he wasn't overly observant, and nor, nor was his son. So um, uh, we actually returned because we became so close with with uh, his family. Um, and I should say as well, in terms of the usual kind of transaction between documentary and maker and subject we didn't have the usual release forms signed uh in that moment so the the deal that we made with jesse was that that the family would sign the release and give us permission to release the film only when they saw a rough cut of the Uh documentary which i think you know i wouldn't have had it any other way it just would have seen seemed obscene to ask someone to sign a release in that in that final week so we returned to uh to Aberdeen a year later, the producer and I to spread Bob's ashes. Um, so that was the 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 you know the final ritual. We spread his ashes at the beach and carry a pebble from that beach with me oh. to this day. And uh, and and so um, yeah, it was Jesse's uh, Jesse's wish to do that. So yeah, not in this case. It was just you know um, Jewish from his his family. Yeah, I find it really interesting being Jewish myself that the period that you followed him was equivalent to what is considered shiva, which is the period of mourning following a death. It's kind of like sitting shiva in reverse, which I find really fascinating. Wow. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I hadn't considered that. That's remarkable. That is yeah. so interesting. And it, yeah. what's also so interesting about that is that um, I, I don't know whether you notice this in your documentary, in the making of your documentary, but often the anxiety and the grief and the angst and the lead-up to a death when the time and the date is known is very different to when there is an unknownness about it. And so in a way there is that reverse shiva of mm. that anticipatory grief. Yeah, and it's it's also the processing of that grief. You know, shiva is designed for the family to come together and remember the good times. And it's, it's interesting to me as a concept that they got to do that with the person they mm. were grieving which is uh, really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I, I couldn't help but, um, you know, because Bob has quite a lot of energy in, in the film and he's quite kind of, his his memories and this idea of him having these memories for the last time and recounting memories for the last time is quite incandescent. I, I couldn't help but ask him if he was sure he wanted to, you know, set this date and, and also did he want to quickly fly to Cuba or we could take him <laughs> on a holiday to Mexico for a couple of days. But he was he was very resolute that he was, you know, there and set and wanted to to follow through so but we had to ask the question yeah um Amiel, it's train wheels here on zoom um i haven't watched the documentary yet but i'm really looking forward to seeing it i wondered if you could just share a little bit about your own experience making it because it sounds like you were invited into this incredibly intimate time in a stranger's life really and you spread his ashes a year later you know that's that's a remarkable kind of um I suppose, relationship you forged with a person that you really didn't know from a bar of soap. Could you tell us a bit about how that's been for you, what it's been like? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the genesis for this uh, film and and the other project really was seeing um, having a you know a couple of uh, deaths in my own family and and seeing that there be a lack of framework or a lack of preparation in terms of how to deal with grief and 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 seeing the. Um, you know, the wounds uh, subsequent to that. So that was my own attraction to this subject matter, I think, just to kind of understand um, and look at it in a, in a very intimate and, and intensive way. Um, I mean, look, to answer your question, uh, I, I don't think I could have really prepared sufficiently for it. I mean, um, and I think in many ways I'm still processing it. I, I had We had the premiere recently in the UK and there was a very strange kind of a delayed grieving process where I hadn't quite anticipated what it was like to watch my friend die in a room full of strangers and in a weird way kind of grieved more after that first screening um, uh, than after he had passed, you know. And I th the other thing too is, you know, Bob made me promise that I would make sure this film was seen by as many people as humanly possible. So um, there's, you know, that, that degree of uh, pressure as well. So, but in terms of meeting him, I mean, to give you a sense of the, the accelerated nature of the relationship, I think 12 hours into um, our first day, you know, we had breakfast and met face to face that, you know, that morning um, there's that scene in the film where he said, he sort of welcome, he says, you know, welcome to the family. And we, um, we then embrace. So it was a very, very, uh, strange uh kind of serendipity in terms of just how close he felt to our crew um cinematographer and, and sound recordist and producer mm. um i mean it's it's a, it's, a, it's an honor for you and it's the kind of thing that i guess that you will take with you forever and things that you have learned from that experience as well what difference do you think this what's the relevance of this documentary to people in melbourne or victoria Look, I mean, I think uh, in, in in terms of audience responses, I mean, at its most universal and at the core of the film, I think, you know, people have come out of this movie saying that they just want to live their life with a little more urgency and, and if it means calling their loved ones or, you know, intensifying the honesty and, and connection with people around them, I think um, in many ways that sort of transcends uh, the place and certainly the, the legalities or the specifics. It's it's not, it's not a, an advocacy film so much as a personal portrait and a portrait of a family in a time of need so I think in that way um, it, it you know it, it, it can can give a lot to audiences anyway hopefully yeah and I would strongly agree with that I would not call it an adv advocacy film for voluntary assisted dying at all but I would definitely call it a portrait and um, a very true and honest one now we've um, I've ditched any time for a song um, because it's been so interesting talking to you and I can't wrap until we ask you very briefly about your thermal imaging documentary that you've got coming up <laughs> so please tell us briefly about that uh, absolutely so uh, 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 this is the project that kind of led to Man on Earth. It's a it's a, a project that we shot in a hospice in Denver, Colorado, over three weeks. I uh, lived in a hospice and and filmed two individuals in the in the lead up and then um, at the moment of death and then used thermal imaging cameras, so recording um, heat as light, basically to record their bodies cooling after death. Yeah. So the the project is a. Uh, very uh, impressionistic, very beautiful, um, not as graphic as you would imagine. Like it really allows a, for a contemplative space and, and uh, experience for the audience. And it'll be uh, seen as both a, a feature-length documentary but also as like a, an installation with a live score, um, probably at Rising Festival, I think, if that's if, certainly for mm. Melbourne audiences. So, yeah. Goodness. And that's called Traces, <gasps> is that right? It's called Traces. And, yeah. and uh, it was, you know, shot over a couple of continents um, as well as in... Denver, it's it's also intercut with you know over three hundred fragments of everything from childbirth to 
sort of these archetypal life cycle moments that are intercut with these final moments of people's oh, lives. Wow. Now, we're going to have to wrap. Melbourne International Film Festival is where people can see your documentary. Yes, so you can go to the um, MIF, Melbourne International uh, mm-hmm. Film Festival website. We're, our first screening is on the 17th of August, another on the 19th, and then on the 21st. And there's also a free talk at the Wheeler Centre um, about the film in more depth uh, on the 21st as well. So, yeah, get your tickets there. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Now, um, talking about death and dying is isn't easy for many people and um, if this topic has been confronting to any of our um, listeners today please consider calling Lifeline 13 11 14 beyond blue 1300 22 46 36 or talk of course with your usual doctor or your usual healthcare professional um, we're all going to get affected by it thank you to Dr Lexi Frydenberg thank you to Amiel Corden-Wilson thank you to our um, hosts and panellists Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.